Welcome. You're listening to Value Add with Lars Coburn, bringing conversations and reflections that add value to your life. So uh, a lot has happened this week, um, and I had already prepared to speak on Psalm 1. So I'm going to beg your uh, like forgiveness if anything I say uh, hits too close to home or seems like I'm dabbling into to politics. I'm not, actually. I think that... Um, I preached or used this as a devotional, this idea from Psalm chapter 1. So that's where we're going to be is Psalm chapter 1. And I've used this um, analogy to speak about Facebook and and other social media platforms and the news um, long before 2020. And yet I think it is really applicable even to this week as we've um, had some things unfold um, in our country. And then uh, further than that, I want to look ahead towards Easter. And so in this season of kind of preparing for a celebration of Jesus' resurrection, we go through a lot of um, the life of Jesus and what he goes through, if you're following the church calendar and doing some devotional reading that way, um, where we have to go through Jesus' death before we can get to his resurrection. And so likewise for us, I think before we can accept what God is going to do new in our lives, in a, in a new year, in a new era, in whatever it looks like to come out of COVID, maybe that doesn't mean that COVID goes away. Maybe it doesn't mean mask wearing goes away, but it does mean that we begin to accept this as normal life and we do something new. We have to let go of what's gone before. We have to kind of acknowledge that the old way of doing life, our world as we know it, is gone. And so I thought it would be um, exciting, and and I'm doing this in partnership with my friend Jason, who's preaching over in Prineville. Um, We're looking at the theme of exile in the Old Testament uh, from now until Easter. Um, And so I thought as as a church it would be helpful to do some readings in the Psalms, that also kind of pick up on some of this exile uh, literature, and then also look at uh, the prophets of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. So that's kind of where we're going with this new series of of kind of thinking about what it looks like in exile. So let me go ahead and begin with with Psalm 1, now that I've given you kind of my introductory notes here, and uh, we'll read it together and, and talk through it. So it says, Blessed is the one, or happy is the one, the one... Who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, or the instruction of the Lord, the the Torah, the, the scriptures of God, and who meditates on this instruction day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff, that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So I want us to look at that first verse there. Blessed is the one who does not walk. And then it talks about standing. And then it talks about sitting. So normally for me, I think of, um, you know, you start with sitting, you're all sitting, and that's kind of the relaxed position, and then you stand up in order to get going, and then you have to, you know, to get somewhere new, you have to walk. 
So it's kind of backwards in many ways. It starts with saying we're walking, and then we stop to stand, and then we're sitting. So I'd like you to think of it this way, kind of a metaphor. Um, If you've ever been in a crowded airport or like Disneyland or somewhere where there's a huge crowd, you sometimes get swept along with the crowd. You're just kind of walking along. You're not going anywhere particular. The crowd is moving, and you're just walking along with the crowd. Have you been in a situation like that? Well, think of that as your life sometimes. I think about this with social media. It's really easy to get swept along with the crowd. I'm not intentionally going a particular direction. I just begin to like different posts, and then I see more of those posts. Or if I read certain news articles, I feel like everybody is saying this. And I'm beginning to get kind of swept along. I don't realize how I'm being discipled or or kind of mentored by the crowd that's taking me somewhere I'm not even intentionally going. I'm just being swept along with the crowd. And so the psalmist is saying, blessed is the one who doesn't get swept along with the crowd, that doesn't walk in step with the wicked. It's not that they're intentionally doing wicked things, but they're getting swept along with other people and with the crowd. And then it says, uh, or stand in the way that sinners take. So if you think about it, if I'm uh, taking a stand for an issue, it means that I'm, I'm kind of putting my uh, self in this position. I'm saying this matters to me. I'm not no longer just getting swept along. I'm taking a position. I'm saying, you know what, it's, it's okay for other people to think this way, but I think this way. And uh, with social media, this might be a great example, like on Facebook when somebody reposts something. So it's not just that they've clicked like, but they've actually said, I'm going to take this article that's out there and I'm going to repost it on my wall. Or if you're thinking about um, that, uh, that friend of yours who kind of brings up discussions that you're just kind of like, why do we need this? I don't need to hear this one more time, right? Um, so it's one thing for them, though, to take a position, uh, but they're not necessarily taking their own voice and adding to it. They're just saying, I've heard this, I've read this, this is out there, um, and I agree with it. But then when you sit in the company of mockers, you're no longer just taking a stand for something, you're no longer just pausing and saying, this is where I want to belong. You're actually sitting down and getting comfortable in that. You're actually then, he says, sitting in the company of mockers, you're adding your own voice to it. And so as you see this play out in social media or in other things, they create their own post. They no longer just like things. They no longer just uh, repost other people's comments on the political sphere or on these topics that are somewhat divisive or different things. They actually now give voice to it themselves. This is what I think. These are the things that I uh, think are going on. And A lot of times, uh, I think that is a voice of mockery, not just because it's adding to the noise, but it's actually um, destructive talk. And so later in um, Paul's writings in Ephesians, he's going to say something about don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, only what is good for building other people up. And so much, I think, of what mocking kind of portrays for me is what's going on at times where it's degrading, it's it's a meme, a political cartoon, a, a something that's, that's taking the humanity out of the other person. 
And so as we give our own voice to those degrading, dehumanizing pictures, I think we're mocking God as well. We're mocking the image of God in these other people. And so as you can see, there's kind of this progression in Psalm 1 of people who are, you know, innocently swept along with the crowd. But then they begin to stand firm and begin to kind of establish themselves in a particular way of thinking. And then they sit down and get comfortable and add their own voice in a mockery. And so he says those, those people, uh, as we get to the end of the psalm, are going to uh, not be able to stand in the assembly of the righteous. They're going to have a way that leads to destruction. So he then contrasts that with verse 3, um, or verse 2, sorry, the, the person whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So this person is in contrast to somebody getting swept along or standing in the way or sitting in the company of mockers, but they meditate. And so I thought that Hebrew word meditate is kind of interesting. It's actually the same word that's used in Psalm 2. So jump down to Psalm 2 for just a second. Verse 1, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So it's an interesting thing, that word meditate and that word conspire in Hebrew are actually the same word. Um, obviously, in context, they mean two different things. The one who's meditating on the law is doing a positive thing. And so in English, we use a positive word. It's we're thinking, we're contemplating it, we're spending time with it. And conspire, it's actually kind of in English a similar thing. You conspire, you plot, you plan, you spend a lot of time with it, you muse over the stuff, but it's a negative context, right? It's plotting and scheming a bad thing against someone. And so I thought it was kind of interesting that, um, that this Hebrew word is used meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. It's taking up all of their time. It's all-consuming. And we think about this with movies a lot of times. The bad guy, the character, is plotting and he's spending all of his time, he's obsessing over what he's going to do. And I think most of the time for us, the obsession, the OCD, the um, kind of being obsessed about these things is often thought about in a negative way. But in the right context, letting something be all-consuming could be a good thing. And I think that's what the psalmist is getting at. The law of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord, the what God's scripture is about becomes the obsession of the righteous person. It becomes the thing that they do day and night. They spend all of their time not musing, not brooding over what's going on in the political sphere or what's going on with all of these kings and rulers, but they spend their time focused on the Lord and on the instruction of the Lord and what that means for their daily life. And so what happens to that person is they become like a tree planted by streams of water which yields fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither whatever they do prospers. So this person is not... Um, you know, a king, it doesn't say that they're the person in the palace. It says they're like this humble tree that's planted near a source of water. But that tree doesn't produce all the time. It produces in season. Um, we were at the grocery store and the raspberries were like 
I don't know, three for five dollars or something, which seemed very cheap to me. Um, so we grabbed three little boxes of them. And I was thinking, it's not raspberry season. You know, where are these raspberries coming from? <laughs> um, and I realized we're not used to that because we can go to the grocery store and get fruit all year long because there's somewhere growing that fruit or there's some greenhouse or lights and lamps helping grow this fruit. But the psalm recognizes a truth of, of creation, a truth of the environment and the truth of, of what goes on in our world is that we're not always supposed to be producing. We're, where there are seasons in our life where we produce. And this person who meditates on the law of the Lord isn't like our society who's always wanting somebody to be successful, to, to always be making their mark on the world, to be the next. Um, I think of the guys like Mark Zuckerberg who overnight became a millionaire because his, his one thing became the next Silicon Valley thing. And of course now he's under fire with the government, but all those kind of things... Uh, are interesting to me because our society idolizes the one in a million person. They idolize the success, um, the people who are always producing. And yet, the psalmist is recognizing that the person who spends their life meditating on the instruction of the Lord, they're going to produce fruit in the season that God has prepared for them to do that. And so I wonder, as we come out of 2020 that we maybe um, need to recognize it's been okay that we've been hibernating. It's been okay that maybe we haven't done everything that we always uh, had planned. And we also need to look forward to a life that's happy, that's blessed, as one that isn't where we're always constantly on the go. We're not always a microwave society where it's just, give me just a minute, I can reheat this food, right? But it's, it's not an instantaneous gratification life. It's a life... That in the season, when we're supposed to, we get that fruit. Um, and so it uses um, these two analogies of fruit and way. And so I thought um, in verse, uh, let's see, verse 6 there, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So um, he kind of sets up these two things, that the person who's, who meditates on God's law produces fruit, and then they also are along a way. They're going on a way that's different than the way of the wicked. And uh, I'm going to kind of make a, a pitch that I think this way or this fruit that we bear in season, that we can bear for the world, is one of hope. And this way that we live is a way of hope. Um, so what do I mean by that? Let's, let's look at uh, Matthew chapter um, 7. Um, Jesus uh, says this in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So hope is often um, a, a kind of a rallying cry. It's often kind of this vague, poetic imagination for what might be in the future. Sometimes we think of hope as kind of a wish. I hope that tomorrow is good, right? But Christian hope and the hope that the psalmist, I think, is maybe thinking about as we think of this way and this fruit that we might offer is a hope that says, I can look back and I can let go of what has changed and what is no longer a part of my life. And I can look for what God is doing new 
in the days ahead. And I can root my, my uh, positivity, my positive outlook, not just because I have a house uh, over my head or because, as Maslow would talk about, this hierarchy of needs that I have my physical needs taken care of me. I have people in my life who take care of me emotionally and, and psychologically, and I have the job of my dreams. Basically, a lot of people base their happiness on their circumstances. And when circumstances change, their happiness or their emotions go away. And we have a hope that's based not in our circumstances, but in a God who came to earth, who lived a life and who died on the cross. And so Psalm 2 actually speaks about this hope by identifying, and this is a Christian reading of Psalm 2, seeing Jesus as God's anointed. So, um, basically, if we have something to offer the world, we need to be able to live in such a way that points people to the law and the instruction of God that helps them live differently than being swept along, than being, uh, than being with sinners and being adding to the destructive mockery. So, listen to Psalm 2, and I'll make a couple connections here. Why do the nations conspire? That's that obsession, that meditation word. Um, why do the, the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them with his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So it's a little... Um, Interesting poetry here. There's kind of this beginning that's recognizing there's a lot going on in the world that seems um, dark and seems like it's broken. I like to think of the, the nations conspiring and these kings of the earth rising up and they're, they're banding against, they're doing evil things. Um, no matter what your political leanings, we have a lot of interesting tales being told about election tampering to other things. Um, to these rings of, uh, you know, heads of state who are interested with each other. And it's quite fascinating. It's like a TV show or uh, a book or something like that. And I'm not sure about it, but I think that Psalm 2 picks up on some of this. We often are pretty, we look at these governmental leaders, we look at the people in our life, we can look through history and we can see how corrupt leaders have been in the past. And so we wonder about our leaders today. And that's why there are checks and balances, and that's why there's, uh, in a place like America, there's multiple uh, houses of government, and that's what keeps things a little bit more above board. But for sure, the human experience is one that's broken. And I think the psalmist is recognizing that. And so as we read through it, then it's, it portrays God as being up there and saying, yeah, you think you're in control, you think you've got it figured out, and yet... Um, I have raised up my anointed, my son. And this is uh, looking ahead to Jesus. 
And so Jesus then comes and becomes this king, this one that the nations will come and find justice. And so God's justice is not like a courtroom where, um, you know, you come in and the guilty are sent to prison and those, the, the other ones are acquitted or something like that. I actually think God's justice or judgment is more about making things right, setting the record straight. And so it can be a form of courtroom. But that helps me kind of think, okay, um, if the judgment that the psalmist is looking forward to in Psalm 1 and then in Psalm 2 as well is not one to be feared. It's not like, um, oh no, everybody's going to get punished for all the little things that they did wrong. But it's actually about God setting the world right. All these things that we experience that are broken, all these things that we look at and see as corrupt, God sets those things right. He sets the record straight. That's the judgment that we're looking for. And the reality is, is the people who are uh, getting swept along with the wicked, the people who are standing in the way that, that are, is broken and and then uh, who sit and add to the destruction with their own voices, those people are going to have no standing in the day of judgment. They're not going to be allowed in to receive the things made right in their life. And so it's not that God sends them to necessarily a H-E double hockey sticks hell, but it's that their own life leads them to hell, to destruction. That their own life is not set right by the judgment that God brings, the, the justice, the setting of right and wrongs that God does. And so it's not that God causes them to be destroyed, it's that their own way destroys them. And that's where Jesus is saying in his way, narrow is the gate and wide is the way to destruction. Narrow is the, the life that leads, um, or narrow is the gate and the way that leads to life and only a few find it. And so what if... Um, Rather than adding to the noise, the mockery, the, um, the kind of destructive behaviors of our world, we were people who bared, the, uh, who bared fruit of hope, who helped point people to that narrow way so that more might find it and not be destroyed. That more might find the way of the righteous because God watches over it and allows them to come into the courtroom and have standing. And I, I don't know about you, but as I've been watching some of these uh, things play out in the, the political sphere, that idea of standing in a courtroom, whether you belong there, whether you can get before the Supreme Court or you can bring your case, does it even, are you even allowed to argue your case in front of the people who can make a judgment, seems to be kind of significant to me. And so I've, I've changed a little bit of my understanding of what the judgment day, the day when Christ will come again, and what that looks like. I often dreaded it. I thought it was a scary thing where the little things that I did as a child and the things that I said harsh to my friends or the things that I did wrong were going to kind of be read down the line and I was going to be indicted for those things. And I realized, no, no, it's not so much that. It's that God's going to set the world right. And if I'm not in the courtroom, my life's not going to get set right. And if I don't get into the courtroom, that's, a, that's kind of a scary thought. I want to be there. I want to be present. I want to have standing so that my case can be made right. And this is, I think, the gospel, is that Jesus comes and he makes it so I have standing. 
It's not on my own ability to follow the law of the Lord or the instruction. It's not on my ability to produce good fruit. It's in the fact in verse 6 that the Lord has watched over my way. He has watched over me. And his anointed is the one um, who comes and makes everything right again. And so when I take refuge, this is the end of Psalm 2, verse 12. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. And refuge is like um, in the rainstorm, right? We might come in here and get safe from the rain, escape from the chaos. And so I think of that idea of trusting in God. My grandmother's favorite psalm, uh, we're not going to be able to, to read every psalm in the Psalter, but my grandmother's favorite psalm was Psalm 91. And uh, I just, I remember her quoting it to me many times. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And as it goes on, it talks about deadly pestilence and these different things. Pestilence being like an old kind of English word for sickness and disease. And as I think about coronavirus and things like that, if there isn't anything better that describes that, it's a pestilence. It's a pest in our life, and it's a disease of sorts that we need to have refuge from. And so uh, Psalm 91 has is, is been one that I've reflected a lot on during 2020. And I, I think we need to come back again and again in this time of of exile that I, I like to use the word disorientation. So we've been disoriented. Um, in this time of disorientation, we need to trust and find refuge in Jesus. He's the one who's watching over our way. He's the one who gives us standing in the judgment. Um, he's the one who helps us uh, keep our, our lives uh, from going to destruction. And I think what the psalmist is saying for us really, really does matter. If our obsession would be on the instruction of God on Jesus, uh, later in in the Hebrew writer is going to say, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the person who began our faith and who completes it, um, the finisher of our faith. If we would to obsess about Jesus and not these other things, not as, I don't know if you've heard the new term doom scrolling, looking through the news at all the bad headlines, if we would, instead of obsessing over the news and all the doom that is going on, we were to obsess about the instruction of the Lord, obsess about Jesus, the one who gives us standing in the courtroom when the world is going to be made right, when all this chaos and corruption and conspiring and scheming will go away, the scheming of my own heart even, um, I think then we can be people who, who offer the world a new way. And so that's uh, what we're going to look at in these next few weeks is what does it look like to live as people who ha- have the fruit of hope in their life, who follow the way of hope and demonstrate that to others. Um, I, I just want to close by um, talking a little bit about my experience overseas. When my parents and I moved to uh, Vietnam, we were given uh, some training money and they brought in somebody to teach us some words in Vietnamese and they gave my parents a, a book called Culture Shock. And basically it was saying, when you move to this new place, this new country, the food's going to be different, the language is going to be different, there's not going to be familiarity. When you go in the grocery store, it's going to be hard to find 
your same kind of food. The aisles are going to be separated in different ways. Things look differently. People aren't going to be uh, using the same cultural customs. All these things cause you to go into shock or have trauma because you're in a different place. And um, the interesting thing was they didn't prepare us to re-enter. So in five years when we moved back, I had, my brother and I at least did, uh, more culture shock coming home to America than we did going to Vietnam. And I think part of it was, and my dad explains it this way, is that um, as we re-entered, we thought that the world here hadn't changed, that the cultural customs we were familiar with were still there. And the reality was we had changed. And so we were different, coming back to a place that was slightly different, and but it was familiar because the language was the same. We knew what this place was like. The grocery store had the food that we wanted. And yet it was different because we were different. And I wonder if that's what we need to realize is that the world has changed and that as Christians, we're living in a familiar place, but we're different. It's familiar, but it's different. And that's, I think, what hope needs to offer. We don't want to get swept along with just the normal ways that our culture absorbs things. We don't want to take a stand um, that, that is kind of sinful and against God. We don't want to add our voice to the voices of destructive behavior. We want to instead be different, be people who are on the narrow way, offering a way to life. Um, so let's pray and then we'll uh, close with our closing song. Um, God, we are truly grateful for Jesus who gives us hope, um, who came and not only lived a sinful life, who didn't uh, walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners took or uh, sat in the seat of, of mockery, but he, uh, he delighted in your law. He in, delighted in your instruction. He heard the words at his baptism, baptism that he was your son, whom, he lo- whom you love and with whom you are well pleased. And so we also have joined our lives, our stories to Jesus' story. And we want to be people who bear fruit like he did, a fruit of hope. We want to find the narrow way. Uh, and uh, we know that we can because you're watching over our way. That you're uh, helping to set things right even now. Um, and so we, we believe that... Uh, this hope that we can offer to the world as one that's positive and not destructive, um, that can have some practical uh, implications in the lives of our friends and family. We want it to not just be something that we hide away and, and bury, but we want to share it with our, with our world. Um, but we also need your help, God, to realize that it's not about producing all the time, uh, but that we are a tree that bears fruit in the right season. Help us to know what season we're meant to produce in. And uh, so give us guidance around those things. Uh, we thank you for today, just a chance to, to spend time obsessing about your, your instruction, your law. Um, help us to, to not let this just be a weekly or a once in a while kind of thing, but it to be a time uh, that we do every day, all day, uh, day and night, that we spend time meditating on your words. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, who gives us this hope. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to Value Add. For more great conversations and insights, visit valueaddconversations.com.